One of the buzzwords that's driving much of the social change that we're experiencing in our community is acceptance, acceptance. It used to be tolerance. That's, people talked about being tolerant all the time, but we've moved on from tolerance to acceptance. Acceptance is a much stronger term than tolerance. Acceptance means to embrace, to validate, to include, to... Tolerate means to put up with, right? To not create drama. Uh, there was space for disagreements with tolerance. You could uh, disagree and have different views, but you tolerate each other. Have different opinions and so on, but now we're told we need to accept. You're not allowed to say something is wrong. You've got to accept everybody. You've got to accept different views. You've got to accept different lifestyles. And that such acceptance is not only right, but also there's no one who should be excluded. That all views need validation and embracing and welcoming. And more than welcoming, they all need celebrating. And in doing that, we're told that this acceptance will build a unity, not division, that will create something by this acceptance that's bigger, stronger, greater in our community, in our organisations, in whatever it might happen to be. Now, the trouble is that, as with every good lie, there's, it's a half-truth. There's, there's, a, there's a core, a kernel of something that's right about it, but it's been taken and twisted into something monstrous and horrible. Now, last week we began talking about church and we saw in Ephesians 4 the incredible call that God makes on us as Christians to pursue unity, unity with each other, that is, unity with the church in Christ. Unity is something the church should have and strive for and work towards. God, in rescuing us from sin and death, is building one new humanity made up of two people who uh, were, were once enemies of God and enemies of each other, Jew and Gentile, and, and he's united individuals into one new family, the church of God. And so it's a unity that should be there. But today we're thinking more deeply about the kind of unity that God is calling us to. What does it look like in practice? Is it a unity at all costs? Is it a unity that means that there should be no differences that come between us? That's what a unity at all costs would look like. Or another question, is it a unity which means uniformity? Should we all be the same, dress the same, look the same, act the same? Uh, or, or is it a unity that can somehow embrace and accept and even encourage diversity? And, and if so, in what way? Under what circumstances? In, in, it's particularly relevant for us as a church right now, as we think about uh, our gatherings and we're kind of mixed up at the moment, but we'll be coming back sometime soon uh, and we'll get back into our congregations. But as we think even beyond that into the future, as we think about our area and its diversity and we seek to reach out to it and, and we think towards the future development of ministries and even of planting churches and, and having congregations potentially across multiple sites, what will it look like? What should that unity be expressed as and how should, is it a uniformity or not? So let's get to work. First question then, is the unity which God calls us to a unity that comes at all costs? Is this unity something that will mean that every view, every way, every lifestyle should find acceptance? And the short answer to that is, of course, no. It's not a unity at all costs. There are some things that we cannot be united with as 
the church and as Christians. And that's because while unity in the scripture is an extremely important thing, very, very important, there are different sorts of unity. And they're not all the same and they're not all equally valued by God. There are false unities which which turn out to be, in fact, an expression of our rebellion against God rather than obedience to God. The, the prime example of that is the Tower of Babel. Back in the Old Testament, our first reading, um, it, it's right there in Genesis chapter 11. There was a great unity there in the Tower of Babel. You think about the teamwork and the cooperation, humanity united in purpose as as the builders sought to make a name for themselves, to make themselves secure, make their mark and build this tower that reached up even to the heavens so that God would have to look at it and go, wow, look at them at work. Imagine being part of that construction process. People working hand together, you know, in common cause, the, the joking as you come out on the, the, uh, the, the scaffolding, the admiration as you see things happening, the, uh, the, the, the joy and the pride in working together on such a magnificent project. It's much like the feelings that the team gets on Saturdays when we get together to build the Dunnies at Ingleburn. But it was a man-made unity, a unity not under God, a unity that was in defiance of him. That The tower, that is, not the toilets. Uh, hopefully they're a godly toilet building project. It, it was a false unity, the Tower of Babel, as far as God is concerned. And attempts to establish that kind of unity have been made in every generation and every society since, and all of them have failed. What happened with the Tower of Babel? God destroyed it. He brought it down in his judgment because it was a false unity. The unity that Christians have with each other is not institutional. It's not something that's man-made. It doesn't come with sharing the same title, be it Anglican or Australian or Campbelltonian, if that's a word, or even, dare I say, sharing the name St. Barnabas. The true unity that Christians have is the unity of the new humanity that God has created by the death of his son and he is bringing into being by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. True unity is the unity in the gospel and unity in the Christ of the gospel. Now you can see it's that kind of unity and not unity at all costs in our passage in Ephesians 4. You see it in uh, verse 13 towards the end of our passage. He says we're doing stuff until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. See, it's a unity that's in the faith. It's a unity that's in Christ. It's a unity that's in the Word. It's a unity in the knowledge of God's Son. We're united because we we believe the same things, right? Because we know the same God. Because we've had our sins forgiven together by Jesus. And so the unity of God, the unity we're called to as a church, is therefore a unity that resists falsehood because lies, particularly about God, destroy the one thing that binds us together. That is the truth of the gospel. And you can see that in verse 14. He says, Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the winds and waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. Indeed, it's a unity that that is nurtured and fostered 
as we speak the truth in love to one another. You see that in verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, we let us grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is Christ. Now, that can be a tricky business, can't it? Most of us tend to fall on one side of that or the other. Some of us are all for speaking the truth, right? We love it. We'll put our opinions out there and speak our minds at any time. But often it's not motivated by love. And so it becomes harmful. And it's it's more about telling and critiquing and wanting to be seen as being right than actually being helpful and constructive. Others of us tend to fall on the other side, on the loving side, and, and we feel like speaking the truth might make someone upset or worried or uncomfortable and, and it will create tension and so we shy away from it and, and we might avoid the truth that needs to be told, that needs to be said. Both of them are, are, are terrible problems, they're great problems, both are dangers and, and both will end up destroying the unity of the church, either being all about the truth with no love or all about love with no truth. We're speaking the truth in love. We need them both together. That's the way to help each other and the way to help the church of God grow in maturity and in this unity of faith. Without the truth, it'll be building the Tower of Babel, that kind of unity. Without love, we just won't be building anything we'll be destroying. And so it's not a unity at all costs but a unity that's based on the common faith and and it's built by speaking the truth of God into each other's lives in love. But there's another question we need to think through about unity, one which our passage really does major on, and that is the question of whether this unity that we have and are to nurture and build is the same as uniformity. Are we all meant to be the same? Do we all have to... Uh, act the same and dress the same and talk the same? Does does every church that that's across this planet have to be run in exactly the same way and have identical ministries? Should, should they all say the same words and should every week we have one sermon across the board, across the world? And again, the answer is no. Yes, there's to be a uniformity in the, ch- in the truth, one faith, one gospel, united to one God and Father, one spirit uh, but the unity which god is building is a unity in diversity and that diversity is one of the crowning glories and, and most beautiful things about the church that god is building it's a wonderful thing now it's actually a reflection of his own nature we worship a triune god uh one god there's only one god there's no other god that's uh, but but he's not a simple unity. The Greek philosophers talked about God being the unmarked centre of a circle. This is kind of dot that was there, a thing. But no, he's not a, a simple unity. He's a complex unity. He's one God, but within that one God, there are three persons. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who who are not separate from each other. They're not. Uh, they're not three gods. Uh, they are the one God and they're not parts of God. Each of them is fully God and it's one of the most glorious things. 
But it's also one of the most perplexing things in all the scriptures that the philosophers and theologians and mathematicians have marveled at and debated and, and they cannot get their heads around. But, but at the same time, it's one of those things that even the simplest child can understand and appreciate. And this fundamental nature of unity in diversity within God himself, within the Godhead, pervades everything that God has made. And so while we can't mathematically write the equation for God, uh, we can see this triune nature of God in, in, in the way that he works, in, in the things that he's made. You, you can see it in the world around us, in the way that things work together in nature. There are complex and dynamic systems uh, right throughout cre- creation, but, but things work together in a pattern as a cohesive whole. You can see it in humanity. We are uh, one humankind, but with so many different variations within it. You see it, and the Bible points this out specifically, you see it in marriage. Um, it's a profound unity marriage that's made up of two people with different modes of operating with different uh, roles in the marriage, with different feelings and different ways of, of going about life and relationships. And yet in God's estimation in marriage, they're not two individuals anymore. They're, they're something else. They're a third thing, right? They're one flesh united together that we, with all their glorious complexities and differences into something greater. Or, or at least that's how it should be. Often there's pain in it because, you know, the differences there and we, we don't tolerate each other and we criticize and stuff rather than working together. But that profound unity of two completely different things becoming one new greater thing that's greater than them both is there in marriage. But you see it also in the scriptures themselves. 66 books that the, the Bible's made up written by different people over a 1500 year period, uh, and yet there is a profound unity. There, there's a harmonious message to all that God says. He, he doesn't disagree with himself, even though it's over such a long period of time. And the authors, uh, it's something that's supernatural. And you can see it in the church. And in fact, this unity in diversity in the church, God says, is one of his crowning achievements that he delights in. If you just back up for a moment, back into chapter 3, you'll see it there. He's talking in chapter 3 about uh, something he calls the mystery of God, which is uh, the fact that Christ came. It was a secret. It's not mysterious. It's a secret that God kept hidden for generations. But the secret was Gentiles, non-Jews, could be included too in his promises. But that secret that's been hidden in the past has now been revealed. Gentiles can come in, people from all kind of walks of life and backgrounds, be they Jews who are God's chosen people, Israel, or, or those from outside who they were not associated, now be made one, two separate groups, totally different backgrounds, totally different worldviews, one with insiders to God's promises and love, going right back to Abraham, the patriarch of the nation who God called. The other group, strangers, outsiders, pagans, worshipping idols and gods of their own making uh, before God brought them together in Christ. You can see it in verse 8 of chapter 3. Paul says, This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ. 
and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so, and here's the key bit I want to get, this is so God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not an afterthought, the church. It is what God has been building and driving all of history towards and now accomplished in Christ. Now, isn't that amazing? The devil (coughs) and the angels and the demons, that's what he means by talking about the the rulers and powers and authorities in the heavens uh, when he says they're in awe. Their drawers drop when they see the church. There's silence because God is building this one church out of the two completely different groups. But it's not just diversity in terms of ethnic background, which is so astonishing in the church that God is building. It's, it's the diversity of people with different tastes, different styles, and especially a diversity of people with different strengths and different weaknesses who are so unlike each other and have so many different things to offer or that they need, but they're all joined together as one. And Paul communicates it by using the image of a body in Ephesians chapter 4, a human body. Your body's made up of all sorts of different parts and bits and pieces, arms and legs and and nose hairs and earwax and organs and eyes. But every cell within your body, every strand of of the the code, we share the same DNA in all of our cells, the same genes. We have the same basic structure in every single part of our body. Uh, but somehow the cells that are in my arm and the cells that are in my nose and the cells that are in my legs know how to be the thing that they are by the how they're joined and they form something that's that's totally unlike every other part of your body. And, and, and yet it all just sort of works together. And it's glorious. It's glorious in its complexity. It, it's... It's glorious in the harmony that's there in our own bodies. It's glorious in the way that we can turn and twist and, and we can read and we can do all the different sorts of things that we do and that we love doing um, because our body parts know how to work together. The unity is in diversity and the diversity is in the unity. Now imagine for a second that if all the cells on the outside of your body at least uh, decided to produce the same thing, right? That, that you had just noses everywhere instead of arms and legs and eyes and ears, um, you know, his noses popping out. Uh, imagine having a nose where your armpit should be. Uh, that'd stink, wouldn't it? Literally. What if, what if all the inside cells decided to be the same thing and all become noses inside where your heart should be and you, that'd stink even more. Thank God he didn't make us like that. And just like our bodies uh, is made up of these vastly different parts but all sharing the same DNA and working together, that, that's how he's saying the church of God is and should be. You see it in verse 15. 
of chapter 4. We're back in chapter 4. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Christ the head of this body. From him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Church only works because we're not the same. Because we're gifted differently. And it's designed that way before the creation of the world by God. Now this uh, is not the only time that God speaks in the scripture of the church being like a body. And every time the image comes up, it's all about this same subject of unity and diversity and, and, and about the gifts that he's given. And there's different you know, points being made each time. But for example, Romans chapter 12. Just as each of us, this is verse 4 of Romans 12, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We belong to each other. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. It's the same again in, in 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, 14, where he starts talking about jealousy of each other's gifts, but it's this image of one body working together. Or, or 1 Peter chapter 4, the same idea again. All these passages use the same image of this body working together and they make the same point. The point that while each individual within the church is gifted differently from God in their makeup and their abilities, they're all needed. They're all, we're all needed. And if you've got one gift, um, of one kind, it doesn't somehow make you better off with God or more important to God. And nor does it make you less important to God, right? And and on the outside, you're not worse off or better off than other believers because you've got one kind of spiritual gift rather than another. Rather, the way that you have been made with the strengths you've got, that you've been gifted with, with the talents that you've been given, uh, they've been given to you for the service of God as part of his church. And so in the end, who is it that the spiritual gifts are for? And I think this is one of the mistakes that that uh, the church historically has often made and, and lots of Christians end up thinking funny about it. The, the gifts from God are not spiritual gifts for the person that they're given to. They're a gift from God to the church through the person. In fact, in Ephesians 4, he pushes further and says, it's not the talent that you have that's the gift, as if we just need people who can play, we just need guitars played. No, it's the person who's the gift, right? It's the player, not just the playing. It's the, 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 the preacher, not just the preaching. It's the, the, you know, the cleaner, not, the, not just the cleaning. We are gifts to each other. You are a gift from God to us all. All of us being equipped in different ways, all the parts working together, all different, all doing their work. 
whether they're sinews or ligaments or arms or legs or just big mouths like some of us, <laughs> every part working together to promote the growth of the body and building the church up in love by the proper working of each individual part. Now, David's going to be talking in a few weeks over a couple of different talks about how that all looks like in terms of every member ministry, how to identify and cooperate and build together. But I, so I want to draw out some different kinds of implications, some broader implications about our church of St. Barnabas, you know, and, 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 and the future as we seek to develop in, in new ways. The first implication is to think about the kind of church that, that God wants us to build. Because at the moment we're a church made up of a very different people. We come from different ethnic backgrounds. You think through our congregations, we've got, you know, English and Irish and Egyptian and, uh, we've got Russian, Polish, Vietnamese, Chinese, Sri Lankan. Uh, uh, we've had, we've even had an American as part of it as he's watching today. <laughs> we, 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 we've got very different tastes when it comes to church music and, and service style and what the ministers should wear and should we use prayer books or not. You know, we, uh, we've, we've got a huge range of ages from, from two days old at the time of this recording. Congratulations to Andrew and Libby White on the birth of a beautiful bouncing baby boy, Els Well. They haven't named him yet, uh, as I record this, but congratulations to them. But it goes right from two days old up to 90 year olds. We, we come from different social classes. We have people in this church who come from housing commission. We have people coming from the Ladida suburbs up the hill in Tenham Court and, you know, Macquarie Links. Um, and we meet in three different congregations, different times of the day. When, you know, uh, when we get back to normal at Ingleburn, it'll be eight, ten and seven. At the moment, it's eight, nine, thirty and eleven and, uh, and they're shaped differently and, and, and our hope is that we can start new congregations and, and do that over multiple sites with even greater diversity and reach into, the, as we reach into this very diverse area, huge area that we live in, in the North and MacArthur area. Should we therefore work out the one way of doing church that's going to be the same across the board? Is there a one size that fits all, one way of doing church that's right and we're just going to do it and everyone's going to have to suck it up. Same outfits, same preachers, same style, same programs attached to each branch of the church. If unity meant uniformity, then every church and every congregation, not just of St Barnabas, but every church in the world, would look and function nearly the same as each other. But unity is not about sorry, uniformity. To quote from a book that the staff have been reading together called Multi-Church, uh, they make this really helpful point. Unity is not about uniformity. Unity is about being made one as various parts are combined or ordered to promote a common identity. Using the body metaphor, the church is a unity as Jesus Christ redeems people and incorporates them into his body and as the Holy Spirit joins together these diverse parts through the bond of peace into one whole. Unity cannot be coerced or programmed. Rather, it requires the Spirit's work to link together the parts, the church's work to fight against divisions and eagerly maintain unity and the members' work to be humble, patient and forbearing in love. 
Now that means that the congregations that we meet in don't have to be identical. It means if we do plan a new congregation or a new church, then then it's perfectly fine. In fact, it might be really good for us to specialise in some specific way, whether it's a, a group we're trying to reach or a way of doing things that's a bit different. Uh, it, it means we don't have to be limited by the patterns of church that we already are used to if it's not going to be constructive in meeting new people and facing new challenges. What might it look like? I can't tell. Uh, it's something we have to work out, but we have to work it out together. But it means that we've got to all be prepared to go outside of our comfort zones if we're going to do this, outside of our comfort zone as a church, but also outside of our comfort zones and, and individual tastes and things. If we're going to make something happen, you need a core group who might not, you know, it might not be the way that they want to do it at the time, but but for the sake of others, and that's the point, isn't it? For the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the building of the church. We do it, we put ourselves out. Second implication, what does that mean for our attitude personally? Well, it means we've got to be big-hearted, doesn't it? It means we're going to have to be extra thoughtful about each other and others who may join us. And it's no wonder if the church that God is building is a wonderful unity but with a huge diversity within it, that the passage begins with that call to walk in humility and gentleness and patience and love. You don't need to have any of those things if we all think and act and look the same, do you? If we all have exactly the same taste, there's never any fights and division. You don't need to be patient. You don't need to bear with anyone. It's when there's differences that we need those things and we need them in greater and greater measure. I think the last few weeks of us being back uh, to face-to-face church, last couple of months or so, have been a wonderful testimony to our capacity to be like that, to be patient and kind and bear with one another in love. We've been lumped together, haven't we, in ways that we're not used to. The congregations have been mixed up uh, in, in, in another building that we're not used to and, and not necessarily doing the church at each of the ways that each of us would want to do it necessarily, but it's been terrific seeing the love and the patience and the people pitching in and trying new things and the new faces that have have shown up every week and the joy in it and and getting to know people across. It's just been wonderful. Third implication. It also means that we're going to have to be people of prayer because this kind of unity we're talking about is unworldly. It's something strange. It's it's a thing that only God can create, right? Our community may chant its mantra of acceptance by which it seeks to build a Babylonian unity, uh, the Tower of Babel kind of unity, but it doesn't work. It can't work because it's a false unity, right? And you always see it coming apart at the seams. It's because it's a unity that's in rebellion to God. It's a unity that's based on lies that are calling us to embrace things which God hates. That's not the unity that God is calling the church to. He's calling us to a unity of faith, in a unity in Jesus, a unity that shares the same basic DNA that, that beats with that same heart of the gospel, a unity that means that we will say the hard work and do the hard thing when it's required because we're to speak the truth. 
but I'll do it and say it for the good of the other person because it's driven by love. Now, that's a supernatural thing that only God can do. And so we need to be a people and a church absolutely devoted to prayer. Now, we've always had that as part of our aim and our mission statement, haven't we, to to be a church that's prayerfully dependent. But I, I think it needs some attention. We're going to be focusing on prayer in the coming year, in 2021. Uh, we're going to do several different things, but one of the things that I just want to put in your mind now, uh, just to uh, put it in and go, I'm going to be part of that, we're going to be having four of what we're going to call pizza, prayer and praise nights. One each term and they'll be family events. And our hope is that you know everyone from our church family prioritizes and is able to be there together. We're going to be sharing in food, having dinner together. We'll be singing a bunch of songs of praise to our God. And we'll be praying for our missionaries and for our community and for our church and each other in a way that I trust is going to be super encouraging, that you won't have been part of a prayer meeting like that before. And if you put nothing else in your diary for next year, put those in as soon as we've got the dates for you. We need to call upon our great God together to do this supernatural work of building his church, not only in Ingleburn and Glen Quarry, but throughout the world. And so let's commit ourselves to God now. Our Father, you are building something, not just in our church, but in the church in the world, that is totally unlike the world. It is a unity based on truth and love, a unity in Christ that the the pagans can't understand, that the devil and the demons and the angels stand back in wonder and awe. They can't can't fathom your wisdom from beginning, uh, before the beginning of creation. And so, Father, help us to celebrate it and to participate in it and to enjoy it and to play our part. Help us to identify our gifts and help us to joyfully, wonderfully contribute in a way that's going to be constructive. Help us to learn to speak the truth and to do it in love. For those of us who err on one side or the other, we pray that we might learn the opposite and how to meld them together. For those of us who just speak our minds all the time and tell everyone our opinion, help us to control our tongues Uh, and help us to be filled with love and fueled by it, that we may speak only what is helpful for the building of others up. For those of us who are afraid to speak because we don't want to hurt feelings, we pray, please, that we'll learn that the truth's needed and important. And we pray that we'll do these things. Help us as we think through our diversifying community uh, about the different areas and suburbs that are opening up within our parish and just outside of it. Help us to know how we can reach them. We pray, please, for Christian work to go in there. We pray for our ability, for other Christians maybe, to to come and uh, do something new, something great, something wonderful. And we pray through all this we'll be people of prayer, that we'd be devoted to prayer in our individual lives and in our church life together. Please mould us and shape us that each part may do its work in building up your body to your glory. Amen.